Nothing has the power to save but the name of Jesus. Amen? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God kept his ancient promise to come to people like us so that people like us can come to God. That is Christmas in a nutshell, isn't it? What are we celebrating? Why all the singing and the, and the, and the ringing and, and so on? Some of you uh, will this week have opportunity with, with visiting family, with, with uh, interacting with your neighbors to, to, to enter into a conversation about this celebratory time of year. What, what is Christmas about? It's, it's God coming to people like us so that people like us can come to God. The child born from heaven, swaddled and laid in a manger, is the only hope for fallen humanity. The only hope for this sin-saturated world of ours. And what a hope our Jesus is. Our only hope, Christ, is our all-sufficient hope. Jesus is the only mediator between people like us, sinful as we are, and our holy God. That means if people like us are to be made right with God, if we're to be remade as image bearers of God, if we're to be made ready to to dwell in God's very presence one day in his heaven, we we need this Jesus, this, this son who is born to us. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said that when God the Son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. What what a mystery this is, the incarnation. Eternity born into time. Omnipotence cloaked in frail human weakness, a baby, an infant. For love's sake, the unapproachable, holy God chooses to be approached by unholy, sinful people like us. And he says, come to me on friendly terms. Why? Well, it is only possible due to the work of this baby born, this child, this Jesus who is a savior for us, Christ the Lord. We we cannot really comprehend the incarnation, can we? I mean, it's, it's wonderful to try. The songs we've been singing already have been an attempt at this. But it's, it's really too deep and, and too wide and too wonderful for people like us. But we can acknowledge it gratefully. And I pray we'll continue to do that now as we turn to the scriptures. And I'm praying that God will pour out grace so that we might respond rightly. Let's, let's look together now at Luke chapter 2. Very familiar scripture. And very important scripture, as all of it is. Luke 2 and verse 1. 
And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to notice with me in verse 1, that opening phrase, and it came to pass. Some of your Bibles simply say, in those days. Either way, it's a very earthy phrase, isn't it? Ordinary Routine things on this earth are said to come to pass. It just so happened, as if it's all coincidence. But, you know, when you see a phrase like that in your Bible, and it came to pass, or in those days, you are meant to sit up straight and pay very close attention. Why? Because it's not filler. It's not extraneous. This is not the Bible's equivalent of once upon a time. Don't think that. Those of us who are parents and grandparents, I want to encourage us not to mix our Advent readings to our children and grandchildren with Disney and all of that other once upon a time stuff. Keep those books on different shelves. Save them for different times. Don't mix with make-believe stories the wonderful actual history of Christ's birth and the life that he lived for his people. Can we agree to do that? Luke is not writing a bedtime story to warm our hearts so we can sleep off the winter. Luke places the birth of Christ very precisely in recorded human history. We're reading history right now. And it came to pass. God is personally and in actuality breaking into time and human experience. He's keeping an ancient promise to rescue his captive people. And how did it happen? How did heaven and earth kiss? As Thomas Goodwin says. Well, says Luke, God rules in human affairs so that his saving purposes for his people and his world are carried out. Did you know that? God rules human affairs so that his saving purposes for his people and for his world are carried out. What human affairs? Well, says Luke, the the most powerful leader at this point in human history, the most powerful leader on the planet, whose title is Caesar Augustus, gets the wild idea to count all of the men and women and children throughout the Roman Empire, which was the known world at that time, 
all for the purposes of taxation. How great our joy, right? (laughs) The scripture simply says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. What's a decree? What's a decree? It's a decision that's made by someone who actually has the power and the authority and the ability to carry it out. That's what a decree is. The Greek word for decree is dogma. And you and I sometimes don't uh, you know, welcome so much people who are dogmatic, people who say, you know, this is how it is. That's the way it's going to be. There, there's no room for any other opinion, no different viewpoint, period. Well, that's, that's what a decree is. It's authoritative. It, it, it's unbending. And what a decree this one is. This decree of Caesar's is not only authoritative, it's also inconvenient. It's also intrusive to the people it affects. Every person must travel on his own time and at his own expense to his or her own birthplace and register there. Drop everything that you're doing and go now. Right now. Why? Well, Caesar wants to count us so we can pay more taxes. From far away Rome, this young carpenter, Joseph, is ordered to walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 90 miles on foot. Some of us don't like to walk to the mailbox. (laughs) Imagine walking 90 miles on foot. That map does its best to show us the route, but you'd have to go from north to south beyond the squiggly, do you see the squiggly, farther yet south to Bethlehem. That's a long walk. And by the way, bring your fiance, Mary, who is now uh, more than eight and a half months pregnant. Again, how, how great our joy. <laughs> what Caesar decrees must be done. And so off to Bethlehem they go. Now listen, can you imagine a human government imposing on its people a law that is both inconvenient and costly to them? Can you imagine such a thing? (laughs) And why are you all laughing? Because that's the way life is in this fallen world. That's not unique to our generation. I'm not referring to current events, although it certainly suits current events, but my point is it always has. It always has. It's how the world works for us. And viewed from an earthly perspective alone, this all seems so ordinary. It's not until we get to verse 4 Look at verse 4 in your Bible. It's not until we get to verse 4 that we see Christmas from heaven's perspective. How does heaven break into human experience? How does Luke in his narrative move from the, the perfectly ordinary to the extraordinary? Well, it comes to us in verse 4, a bit subtle at first, but it comes to us in the name of this little town, Bethlehem. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, uh, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. 
And so if we, if we look at Luke's narrative with our entire Bibles in hand, uh, the name Bethlehem reminds us of another decree, doesn't it? It's meant to. A decree made hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. God's own decree concerning the birth of his son. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Heaven is to break into earth as light into darkness at this place called Bethlehem. This, this little backwater village on the way to nowhere, really. A place whose name means house of bread. David's hometown, just outside Jerusalem. Yahweh, the creator God, the, the God of the covenant, who provided bread from heaven for his people in their wilderness wanderings will send the very bread of life to his people to bring them through their wilderness. Amen? A ruler who has no beginning and no end. And it's all to happen in Bethlehem, says Micah. And when you fast forward from Micah to the book of Luke, we see something wonderful from heaven's perspective. Joseph and Mary live up in Galilee way up north in Israel, and yet they're both descendants of David. Both have a heritage that traces them all the way back to ancient Judah, where Bethlehem is located. And a thinking person has to wonder, well, how, how then is Jesus, David's greater son, going to be born in Bethlehem as the scriptures foretold? Uh, Mary is about to give birth. She's very, very, very pregnant. How will God's word yet be true? Well, God himself will use human affairs, won't he? God himself will use unfair and inconvenient things from a human perspective to accomplish his good purposes, his saving purposes for his people. I wonder if we're meant to actually live believing this stuff about our God. When we compare a human decree with God's own decree, how many of you know God's decree is the one that matters? It's the one we're to live by. It's the one we're to be most concerned with. What God purposes to do, he will do. Yes, from earth's vantage point, havoc is created in the lives of his people because an earthly ruler uh, insists on this census being taken and, and he has all of the authority and power to decree such a thing. And yet from heaven's perspective, God the Father long ago ordained that a Roman kid named Octavian would become Caesar Augustus. Caesar just means emperor. Augustus means highly esteemed one. 
As some of you know, Octavian gave himself the name Pontifus Maximus, meaning what? Highest priest. He insisted that he be worshipped as God in a Roman temple. But it is God the Son, still in Mary's womb, who decrees that this particular Caesar, at this particular point in time, will issue a decree that brings about the fulfillment of God's saving purposes for his people. Caesar, without even knowing it, is obeying the one who rules all things. Do you believe this? So Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem not because of what Caesar decreed, but because of what God decreed. God's decree... God's promise to bring to mankind a savior, a deliverer, an eternal king, appears in Genesis and and continues in greater and greater clarity throughout the Old Testament. As Jesus grew in the womb of Mary, this promise from God grows in the womb of the Old Testament with greater and greater clarity. God says in Psalm 2, verse 7, for example, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, the the only decree that's absolute is the decree of God himself. Exhibit A is that holy child in that filthy manger in Bethlehem. And so Luke says to us, Mary had never been a mother before, but she is a mother now. Jesus had never had a mother before, but in his humanity, he has a mother now. Think of this, though. God the Son, who is from everlasting, spoke of his Father's decree long before Octavian or his empire were ever born. Psalm 22, 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. And so heaven kisses earth in the coming of God's son, just as God had decreed. What a, what a wonderful comparison for us are these two decrees. Now, before we move on, let me just say this. Do you realize, friend, that God has decreed that you would be here today? You see, well, I came up with that myself. I I got in my own car, or my neighbor brought me, my family brought me. Um, Think about what we just read. Luke gives us something else to compare in this portrait of heaven kissing earth. Let's, let's look now at verse 8 of Luke 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We've compared two decrees, and now we'll compare two flocks. Why? Because I got stuck on the word flock uh, the way I got stuck on the word decree. And you guys know how this works. You're right in it with me now, aren't you? Look at, look at verse 8. There, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Multiple shepherds, yet one flock. I got stuck on that. Why? Most of the most literal translations of the scriptures leave that word flock in the singular. Why? Well, well, if, if we look at this iconic scene with our entire Bible in view, we know that God also has a flock, singular, doesn't he? God watches over his flock, his one flock, as these shepherds watch over their one flock. In the Old Testament, God has one flock, Israel. In the New Testament, God has one flock, the church, the Israel of God. God has one flock, not two, not many, just one. And so today in this room, uh, there are just two kinds of people. There are those who belong to God's flock, and there are those who are yet outside of God's flock. You say, well, there must be another option. I'm afraid there isn't. And what is said of God's flock, God's elect people? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What is that saying to us? We were created to be God's holy image bearers, weren't we? And yet we distort the holy image of God with our sin and, and with our selfishness. That, that is our birthright in Adam. We were created to follow God as sheep follow a shepherd. Do you follow God? And in following him, obeying him, enjoy the best life that God has for men and women like us. And yet by nature, so often we go our own way. And I would submit to you that the discontent, even this glad time of year, betrays the lie that our way, apart from God, is the best way. That's a lie. And this estrangement, this alienation from God, the sinfulness that God in his word refers to as darkness, is an alienation that will continue for eternity in hell unless there is some rescue, and some change in course that leads us to a change in destiny. Christmas is the good news of God's rescue, isn't it? That brings about a change in course that leads us to a change in destiny. 
And that brings us back to this one flock in Luke 2. The shepherds near Bethlehem. At Bethlehem was a place known in scripture as Migdal Eder, or the Tower of the Flock. From here on out, I will call it the Tower of the Flock for obvious reasons. But this, but this place between Bethlehem and Hebron was a place where shepherds watched over a flock that was kept exclusively for temple sacrifice. Where is the Christ child to be found? How will these shepherds know where to look? Could it be the child lays right in that area where spotless lambs are watched by shepherds so that those lambs might have their blood shed to atone for the sins of God's people? I don't know. But I do know this. I know ever since Micah's day, the tower of the flock has been associated with messianic expectations. Listen to Micah 4.8. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. What in the world is that about? An eternal king is coming, Micah says. And he will be unveiled to his people, his one flock, the Israel of God, the daughter of Zion at Migdal Eder near Bethlehem. So here are shepherds watching over a flock, singular. And again, we we look at this very familiar scene with, with our entire Bible in hand. We remember that John the Baptist shouted out something when he saw Jesus, the man, didn't he? he? He said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God the Son has left the glory of his heaven. What what a condescension this is. Down, down, and, and, and further down he comes into our nature, human just as we are, and unlike us, perfect in his humanity. The eternal one who had always been independent of his world, Do you realize God doesn't actually need us? He is independent of his world. But now in the flesh depends on it. What do I mean? He breathes its air. He he eats its food and drinks its water. He he hears its suffering. He, 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 He hears its cries. The one who had always been watching over his creation now has his mother's eyes watching over him. How do you explain that? Well, says Thomas Goodwin, it's it's heaven kissing earth. How else can you put it? You'll find him in Bethlehem, the angel said. The king has come to Bethlehem to be a lamb. Don't miss that. It's not for the manger that he came. He has come for the cross. 
He's come because Calvary is calling him. The life that he has in our nature must be given over in death because he came to die the only human death that will save his people from their sins. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd who who gives his life for the sheep so that his sheep, his, his one flock, can be reconciled to God forever, forever. What a comparison Luke gives us in these two flocks. He he takes us from the ordinary to the extraordinary, doesn't he? Two decrees, two flocks. And one last comparison, Luke shows us two responses. Two responses. Look at verse 15. So it was, when the angels had gone away, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child... His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So it was, says verse 15, when the angels had gone away. Doesn't that seem like an an incredible understatement? (laughs) Heaven itself had just broken into humanity, blinding, radiant light. The the glory of God himself pierces the darkness around Bethlehem, like one of those, you know those flash grenades that you see sometimes around, when do we do those? Fourth of July? Like that. I mean, it's just bright, you can see everything, and then now it's just dark again. The angels disappear. And these startled sheep settle down and they start making their disgusting sheep noises again. That's what they do. It's all, it all returns to ordinary. It's, it's as if heaven has spilled out onto the earth and then, then just like that, it's all zipped up again and gone. How, how would you react to such a thing? Well, I think most people in this room would at least have the thought, did that just happen? Let's compare notes here a little bit. Is that, is that your understanding of what just occurred? How should we respond to this? Listen, when, when God breaks into your life, when he really gets your attention, you're left with that question, aren't you? How, how are you going to respond? God has come in the person of Jesus Christ just as decreed, 
God has come. The heavenly becomes human so that fallen humanity might get back to God. God's flock at last has a shepherd to lead his people home. How how will you respond? Well, I could commend to you the response of the shepherds. But what do they say? Let us go now. Let us now go. Let's see what the Lord has made known to us. They believe that this babe lying in the manger is their Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you? But by God's decree, are you one who is here today who needs to stop dilly-dallying and delaying about who Jesus is? You need to make a straight line for this Jesus who is your Savior. That's what the shepherds did. Let us now go. You've let too many Christmases go by. And will you not come to Christ now? Straight line. Right now. Profess Him for who He is. Your Savior, your Lord, your King. I could commend the shepherds' response further, couldn't I? It's not just that they believe this gospel from God. They, they become the first evangelists to Bethlehem. You notice that? Verse 17, Now when they had seen him, Christ, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. We know they believe and we know with what fervor they believe because they return to their work, says verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Just think about that. Belief. Glad gospel sharing. Worship. How different their response is that of most of the world today, let alone most of Bethlehem back then. Into the world comes its maker and sustainer, and the world says what? There's no room for you. Leave our country, leave our schools, leave our entertainment as it is. We've we've got our own thing going. Jesus preached, but the people had no room for his preaching. Preach to me all the truth that you think is truth, and I'll have my truth. I'll go my way. It's my life, but don't tell me of the one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. Jesus did so many miraculous things among his people, in his humanity, but, but their lives were too full. <laughs> Not unlike that inn at Bethlehem, right? Not unlike many lives today. Too full. No room for the Savior. What, what, what is your response then to this Savior who is, who is Christ the Lord? I could commend to you the angel's response. You ever think about that? Do you realize that Luke's narrative demands that we do away with our Christmas card theology that that shows us little soft cherubs floating around in space singing soprano 
Do you realize how silly that is? That is, at best, a cartoonish version of what we read in God's Word. Luke tells us of heaven's warriors. A host is an army from heaven. Their commander and king has come to this earth. And there he lies in a smelly, dirty manger. Because he's to live among smelly, dirty people relative to the holiness of God. And their commander has come not to be admired, not to make people feel warm and fuzzy about themselves. He has come to do battle. And he's come to win. What he had decreed he would do long ago in the Garden of Eden, crush the serpent's head. This is what he's come to do. The king will go from the cradle to the cross after living a holy life for his own in just a few years. And from this borrowed womb, he will go to a borrowed tomb. Why? Because he has no home here. He's come here to bring his people home to him. Are are you one of his people? Glory to God in the highest they thunder. I I can't picture this as as three little cherubs singing soprano. I just can't. (laughs) Do you bow in wonder at the king, the Lord, as they do? Do you obey and believe and worship this Savior as the shepherds do? But, you know, to finish this this final comparison, we've compared decrees, we've compared flocks, we're comparing responses. Let's consider Mary's response. Look at verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary is a first-time mother, isn't she? And surely, as a mother, she cradles Jesus in her arms And she holds him extra tight. That's what first-time mothers do. Now, by the third or fourth kid, you're not holding on as tightly. We all know that. (laughs) But for the first kid, you're hanging on tight, aren't you? It matters to you who touches that child. It's It's just not anybody who gets to hold that baby. Not the first one. Heaven help the fourth one. You don't even know where he is. She's already wiped the sheep spit and other filth off of the manger. Any first-time mother would do that. And now surely she wipes his first tears and she kisses his cheek. Surely Mary kissed her son. And as she does all of these wonderful things that mothers do, Mary ponders I pray that you are pondering this morning. That that word ponder means to to put something into context. To to piece it all together based on what you know to be true. 
It's to look at what we've read in Scripture and, and ask yourself, well, how, wait a minute, how does all this fit together? What in the world does this have to do with me? That, that's pondering. Are you pondering? How does this all fit together? Psalm 119, 130 says this, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. My prayer is that right now. By God's grace, there are some among us who are unfolding the word that God has given concerning his son. Putting it all together as light in darkness. And we've compared two decrees. Remember, what God decrees will stand. What God decrees will stand. And remember, a decree, a decree is a decision made by one with the, the power and the authority and the ability to carry it out. And what God has decreed concerning his son is of utmost importance to you and to me. God has decreed, for example, to those who are yet outside his flock, this, Psalm 2, verse 12 Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the son, what is that all about? This is the kiss of surrender to your Lord. This is the kiss of belief in Christ. This is, frankly, not all that unlike Mary's kiss, a kiss of affection for the son who is her savior. That's a right response to God's gospel decree, isn't it? Kiss the son. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior. And as you ponder these things, how, how do you respond? Well, l listen to God's own benediction in that same psalm. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. That's Christmas. That's Christmas in a nutshell, isn't it? God came to people like us so that people like us can come to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this truth. Oh, how we never tire of hearing of the wonder of your incarnation. Lord, we could never understand it fully. We could never adequately explain it. All the songs written in all of the history of your people cannot contain it. But Lord, we so stand in awe of what you have done in coming into this world to save us, to bring us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace now to respond rightly. And we ask you this, Jesus, for your namesake. Amen.